Welcome to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My name is Jonathan Edwards, and I serve as a pastor at the Grace Brethren Chapel located in Northwest Ohio. The goal of this podcast is to teach God's truth and how to apply it accurately to one's life so that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed as you contemplate God's word. Greetings and welcome back, saints and fellow bond servants of Jesus Christ. I trust that your time in the Word has been profitable and that you've been applying God's truth to your life. Well, today we're coming at you with another mailbag episode. A couple of questions have come in. Um, one of the questions in particular is a question that I field, I would say, sem- semi-regularly as a pastor, and so I wanted to take time to address that here in this mailbag episode. And so without further ado, let's get to the questions. Uh, the first question is a question concerning worship. And I believe that this question is one that um, many people have. Uh, Maybe some people are afraid to ask, but it is a question that comes up, I would say, fairly regularly in pastoral ministry. And so let me read the question to you as it came in, and let me then kind of summarize it for you and help you think through a biblical answer. Here's the question. When we don't feel like worshiping, Maybe if we're walking through a hardship or some kind of suffering or something of that nature, how can we worship so that it's not in vain or going through the motions? And the purpose of asking this question is we know that worship is commanded and it requires discipline, but what about when our heart just isn't in it? Okay, so um, I'm going to summarize this question by saying, how do we worship if our heart isn't in it? How do we worship, or what are the prescrip- What is the prescription for worship if our heart isn't in it? I think the answer to this question begins, first of all, in accurately defining worship. What is worship? And you may say, well, that seems like an obvious answer or a, an obvious statement. What is worship? The definition should be fairly plain, but it's not. I think in our current evangelical community. In the Christian community, worship has become, instead of a concrete idea, it has become a nebulous idea. It has become kind of a a mystical idea, And, and that is because many associate a certain feeling with worship. And so worship has become, I would say, feelings-based or feelings-driven rather than knowledge-based, and truth-driven, all right? So if we're going to define worship, and we're going to ask ourselves or ask the question, how do I worship if my heart isn't in it, we first need to have an accurate understanding of what worship is. So if you were to go to uh, some Bible dictionaries, if you were to just examine the words worship in the Old and New Testament, uh, there are uh, the, the, the main idea is to bow down before or to prostrate yourself before another. Now, I taught an entire class on worship in Sunday school at the chapel, and um, one the working definition that I came up with for worship was this. It's an attitude of reverence, awe, and the giving of honor to one whom honor is due. And the nice thing about this definition is it is applicable not only to Yahweh, but to false gods and to, let's say, kings or monarchs or others who are in authority. Worship is an attitude of reverence 
an attitude of awe, and the giving of honor to one whom honor is due. Now, you may say, well, you said it's an attitude. Well, that's exactly what the question is about, feeling, if my heart isn't in it. There's a difference, though, between an attitude and a feeling. An attitude is a mindset. An attitude is a mindset that is based upon a recognition of true facts. An attitude is a settled way of thinking about something. Now, we don't often think of our attitude that way because we have either misdefined or misrepresented the word in English. But attitude, according to the dictionary, is a settled way of thinking about something. Our feelings, however, our feelings describe how we are interacting with the circumstances of life at a given moment. I feel tired. Why? Because maybe you had poor sleep. Maybe you were in, your sleep was interrupted by uh, young children who woke up in the middle of the night. Or maybe you feel exhausted because you've had a lot of work to do and uh, the rest that you've had has not been sufficient to recuperate from the work. Or you feel overwhelmed because maybe whatever, you know, it, it could be a work issue, it could be a life issue. And so our feelings are often based upon the circumstances around us. But our attitude is a mentality, a settled way of thinking about something. And so you need to be careful not to confuse attitude and feelings. And there are far too many times, and I'm guilty of this myself, there are far too many times that we confuse attitude and feelings, and we allow our feelings to control our attitude versus determining what is the right way to think and setting our attitude and then allowing our feelings to follow with our mentality. Now, I want to recognize that what I've just described here is the harder way of doing life. The harder way of doing life is to fix your attitude and then allow your feelings to flow from that. The easier way and the tendency of most of us is we feel a certain way, and then our attitude follows our feelings. If we understand that worship is an attitude, not a feeling, then that will help us to have a right frame of mind when we go to worship. Now, secondly, we need to understand that worship is an act of obedience. The, the very act of worship, of giving honor to, honor to the one whom honor is due, of having reverence, of having awe, that is an act of obedience. And we can see that in how God sets forth the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel. And realistically, if we were to come to the New Testament, these commands have not changed for the church. Now, the church is not Israel, all right, so don't get that confused. But God's spoken truth to the church regarding worship is the same as his spoken truth to Israel regarding worship. Now look at this, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth below or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love and ki- loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. What can we learn from this text? That worship is an act of obedience, and obedience is not dependent upon feeling. We must obey whether we feel like it or not. Therefore, we can say this, genuine worship is genuine obedience to do what is right. It involves the practicing of self-control to do what is prescribed, to do what is good, to do what is morally right in spite of how you feel. And oftentimes, our acts of obedience require us to push aside the feelings and the circumstances of life in order to focus our minds on the being who is the creator God and the one who is the author and sustainer of life. Now, Jesus had some very specific things to say about worship, and in defining worship, he said this, those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. Those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. And this comes directly from the conversation that he had with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Now, in spirit is not the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit of the individual. It is your own human spirit. In other parts of Scripture, we would call this the heart. Proverbs says that the heart is the wellspring of life. Elsewhere in the Gospels, in, for example, Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter 7, Jesus says that this is the heart. The heart it reveals your inner character. The heart reveals your inner person. And so the, the true worshiper is one who is worshiping in the inner person. That is the spirit. And it is worship according to truth. You worship both in the inner man, the spirit, and you worship in truth. This is objective reality. And who defines objective reality? Where can that be found? It is, of course, the Word of God. It is not some kind of made-up religious ritual, but truth is revealed in the 66 books of the Holy Scriptures. Truth is not how you feel at the moment, but is the basis of objective reality by which you need to compare your circumstances to that which God has revealed. So oftentimes, for example, when we are suffering, when we are going through hardship, we feel down, we feel discouraged, we feel broken, and it's not unnatural to feel these feelings. In fact, you can go to the Psalms and you can find many examples of King David feeling down, discouraged, and broken. But does he stay in that position? Does he remain down, discouraged, and broken? What is the antidote? What is the antidote to being down, discouraged, and broken? In the Psalms, it is always a focus or a renewed focus, I should say it that way, it's a renewed focus on God and his character and his mighty deeds. That's worship, you see, because you have directed, you have taken control and you have directed your feelings towards the one who is 
true, the one who is good, the one who is perfect, the one who is holy, that is Yahweh God, you have directed your mindset to honor him, and then your feelings will follow suit, okay? In truth is a very key component to worshiping if your heart, quote-unquote, isn't in it. I think as Christians, to provide a little more context, as Christians, we're often afraid of being accused of being Pharisees, whereby, you know, we have these outward things that we do, but our hearts are far from God, and it is a great fear of many Christians to be accused of being a Pharisee. So let's, let's understand, okay, how do we worship if our heart isn't in it? Does this mean that I don't worship if I don't feel like it? No. It depends on what the truth is that you're practicing, okay? It depends on what the truth is that you're practicing. So if we're worshiping in spirit and in truth, uh, there, there may be times where your inner man, okay, your heart is just far from God. That's just a reality of living in a sin-cursed world and an environment under the curse of sin. But when you go to worship God, you are obeying the Word of God, and you are going to practice the truth. What does that look like? It looks like you're reading the Scriptures, whether you feel like it or not. It looks like you're devoting yourself to prayer. It looks like you're joining with the saints to worship. It looks like you're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody with your mouth and in your heart that brings glory and honor to God. And as you sing the Word of God, it often has the effect of changing your feelings, okay? So if you're just, quote-unquote, going through the motions, if if the motions that you're going through are the actual prescribed means of worshiping God, and you're doing it out of obedience, even if you don't feel like it, that is the right way to worship when you're going through hardship. You choose to fellowship with the saints. You choose to read the scriptures. You choose to pray. You choose to sing. You choose to give. Those things honor God, even when you don't feel like it. Why? Because they're acts of obedience. Those are things that we have been commanded to do. Now, when you say going through the motions, if you mean that you're putting on a pretend happy face so that nobody can see your hurt or your sorrow or your suffering, if it just means that you're um, showing up at church to check a box and you're not really interested in meditating on the Word of God, bringing your attitude into conformity to the obedience of the Word of God, if you're just there to do kind of like... um, hey, this is my act of religious charity for the week, and I'm here just checking the box, that is going through the motions. That's when you're like the Pharisees. You're concerned about the outward conformity, but inwardly you're far from God. All right, and so that's what really separates, you know, worshiping when you don't feel like it or worshiping when you're, quote-unquote, going through the motions. That's how you can tell whether it's genuine worship or just some kind of worship, a worship action that pleases man. Another way that you can tell is, where would I rather be than church? I'm going through this hardship. Where would I rather be than church? Who would I rather confide in?
than my pastor or my close Christian friends who are going to tell me the truth no matter what? If you can answer that question or those two questions, that will tell you what the object of your worship is. If the object of your, if you're saying, I, I just really don't want to go to church, I don't want to be there, I want to go somewhere else, or I don't want to confide in my pastor, I don't want to talk to my close Christian friends because I don't want them to speak the truth into my life, but yet you're still showing up at church and you're still kind of like um, pretending that here we are, everything's fine, everything's normal, um, I'm all good. That's when you're going through the motions in a pharisaical way, and you need to repent from that, and you need to allow the truth of the Word of God to speak into your life and to transform your thinking and your actions. All right, well, I think that covers that particular question pretty pretty strongly. Um, I want to move to the next question now, and the next question is, uh, this is, this is a, a bit of an interesting question. The next question is actually kind of a two-part question, okay? So part one and part two. So what should be a Christian's perspective on things like legends or conspiracy theories or myths and fables? What should a Christian's perspective be on those things? Is it wrong for Christians to believe in, like, aliens or mythical creatures such as the chupacabra or sasquatch or other things of that nature? Um, what about Christians who say that they have seen angels or reports of people who see angels? Is there any benefit in discussing these things um, or not? Okay. So when I read this question, uh, it became apparent to me that this is, this is really a two-part question. One, part one, dealing with legends, conspiracy theories, or myths and fables— the scriptures speak to that in a specific way. The other part of the question is actually the reports of people seeing angels. Now, this, in my estimation, is a bit of a different question, and that's not quite the same as a legend or a conspiracy theory. It's not the same. There's a difference, and I'm going to explain that, okay? So, what are we going to say about this? How are we going to answer this from the scriptures? First of all, there is a difference between a legend and a conspiracy theory and the report or reports of people seeing angels or demons or ghosts. Those two things are two separate categories, okay? So the legend or the conspiracy theory is in the category of what I would call general fables. Often there is truth behind them. They start off with some kind of kernel of truth or maybe a, a true set of facts, and yet over time, they morph into something that is greater than the sum of their parts. They morph into something, the story is embellished, uh, it's a very difficult thing to kind of di dissect what is true and what is false, but it's, when you look at these things, it's, um, depending on what you want to believe, you will weigh some evidence with more weight than other evidence, or you will give more credence to some pieces of evidence than others, depending on your personal presupposition. So if you're um, somebody who is predisposed to want to believe in legends, to want to believe in conspiracy theories, you're going to view this topic a little bit differently than somebody who I would say is skeptical or cynical of legends and conspiracy theories. 
Now, this is not to say that a legend or a conspiracy theory, that they're just untrue right off the get-go. I don't think that we could say that. What I will say, though, is that in the scriptures, there are some keys or some key statements that are made that should help Christians think about the type of time and energy that they put into dissecting legends, talking about conspiracy theories, so forth and so on. For this, we need to go to the book of 1 Timothy. So we're going to go to 1 Timothy. Uh, We're going to begin in uh, chapter 1. So 1 Timothy 1, verse 4. All right, now here Paul is writing, okay, let's actually start in verse 3. Paul is writing to Timothy. He's giving him some pastoral insight as to what kind of things he should spend his time on as a pastor and how he should instruct the people of the church to use their time, okay? So here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, he says this, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Okay, so first thing that Timothy is supposed to do in the church is to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Evidently, there were some men in the church, men who were real professing believers, okay, because Paul doesn't call them out as unbelievers. He, he says they're believers, okay? He treats them like they're believers. He instructs them not to teach strange teachings, okay? Doctrines are teachings, nor to pay attention to myths or endless genealogies, okay, which give rise to mere speculation. And here's the key point for us. In talking about legends or conspiracy theories, what is the end goal for that? Is it just to entertain you for a certain period of time? Is it just to be something that um, fills your time? Or does it, does it really affect the way that you think about life and the way that you live life? I'm not really into legends or conspiracy theories, except when it comes to political conspiracy theories. Why? Because I, I'm interested in politics, and I do that as a hobby. And there are a lot of conspiracy theories that are floating around presently in 2023 about a lot of different political topics. And the reality is, I'm not going to spend the time trying to get to the quote-unquote bottom of these conspiracy theories. Why? Because it's not profitable for me. It doesn't really help me. It doesn't really advance even what I think I would like to do in society as a Christian. It's not really profitable. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean that you should just ignore them. You could listen to them. You could entertain them. You can kind of, like, put up your radar and say, hmm, here's what I heard about this particular situation. Let me just put that in the back of my mind, and maybe if I hear something else about it from another source and something else about it from another source, maybe those things can eventually be confirmed, all right? But again, what is the end result of that? What's the end result of a political, of paying attention to political conspiracy theories for me as a Christian? Really not much. It doesn't affect my life too much. I can't really do anything about it. And I'm not even sure that it furthers the cause of Christ. And you can see that that is really what Paul's point is here, okay? Don't pay attention 
okay? Don't give a lot of attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, okay? So now we're dealing in that which is unknown, that which is uncertain, all right? Rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith, what you should be spending your time on, okay, is those things which further the administration of God, which is by faith. And a good example of this, uh, actually, in our church life at the present time, has been occurring as we've taught through Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. There are a lot of kind of empty spaces, if you will, where we can fill in the blanks about what things look like, uh, what, uh, what the created world was like originally, what would have happened had Adam eaten of the tree of life. Um, what would have happened if Adam would have not eaten the fruit, but Eve did eat the fruit uh, that was forbidden? So many things of speculation. And you could just spend a lot of time going down a lot of different rabbit trails. But does that really, does any of that really change the point of the Genesis narrative? <clears throat> no, it doesn't change the point at all. God created, all right? Adam and Eve were given a mandate, and they violated the mandate. And the fact that they violated the mandate, especially Adam's violation of the mandate, caused all of creation to fall into sin. So while I could focus, and I could spend some time going on some of those rabbit trails in the book of Genesis, that doesn't really further the administration of God, which is by faith. And so I'm choosing, I'm choosing personally not to do that. Now, I, I will talk about it a little bit. Maybe I'll look into it uh, because it's part of the due diligence of studying for a sermon and to being well-prepared, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, and I'm not really going to bring those things to the congregation from the pulpit. Why? Because it doesn't advance the administration of God. It doesn't help promote the truth and the agenda of Yahweh God. Paul, again, later in this book, 1 Timothy chapter 4, okay, 1 Timothy chapter 4 says this, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So you're not to be spending your time or a large chunk of your time thinking about worldly fables, myths, and genealogies, and legends, and conspiracy theories. Rather, because your time is so limited, you should be disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness. So as a Christian, what should you think if somebody brings something like this up? Well, here's what I do. I'll entertain it, but I'll, I'll, I'll entertain it with a caveat. I'll be like, yeah, I'll, I'll hear what you have to say, but I just want you to know that I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm not going to go do my own research or a deep dive. You know, if, if you want to share something with me, I'll, I'll listen. But what I'd really rather talk about is some type of hard theology, some aspect of, you know, maybe a, a theological difficulty that you're working through, a difficulty that you have in understanding or applying the scriptures. And so, personally, I try to turn the conversation away from legends and conspiracy theories towards things that actually are fruitful. Now, what about this reports of seeing angels? I think this is something that should be taken extremely seriously. Why? Because Satan and his demons often disguise themselves as angels of light so as to deceive people. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, all right, 
He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So when I've had the opportunity to encounter somebody who says that they saw an angel, or a ghost, or some other type of spirit being, I always try to elevate the conversation. I I try to escalate the conversation in this way. Do you understand the depth of the spiritual war that you are involved in right now? Do you understand that this is not just something to kind of mess around with, it's not something to dabble in, that there are real spiritual forces of darkness behind these emanations that you see? And now, maybe that's not the exact question that I'll ask, but I'll ask a question like that because I want to kind of jar the person's reality. A lot of people take it as a joke or a sign or, you know, it's just like kind of not serious to them. Um, Some people it is very serious, but I believe because the scriptures teach that Satan does disguise himself as an angel of light and also his ministers, which would be the demons, that when somebody tells me they've seen an angel, I believe that they have engaged in a firsthand spiritual warfare, and they need to understand that they are in a spiritual war. You know, Ephesians chapter 6 is very instructive, right? Ephesians 6, 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There is no room for being wishy-washy about the spiritual warfare that we are presently involved in. And if I can help somebody who says that they saw an angel or saw a ghost, if I can help them to understand that there is a spiritual battle going on and you need to be aware that you are a pawn on the battlefield, you are a, whether you're a willing pawn or an unwilling pawn, the battlefield is happening right now, right around you. I want to challenge that person to think more deeply about the experience that they have. And oftentimes that starts with an accurate representation of the gospel, clearly explaining to them who Jesus is, what Jesus did, how Jesus could help them in their particular situation. And when you share the gospel clearly, when you talk about the gospel clearly, it obviously has the power to transform lives because It is the Word of God that convicts the hearts of sinners, but it also brings clarity to the spirit that might be behind this particular emanation. You see, the person who rejects the gospel and who recoils from the gospel may actually be further along on the road of demon worship than they really understand. Their attitude towards Jesus Christ will reveal much about what they think regarding this spiritual experience. Maybe they actually want this experience. Maybe they're happy to be deceived. And we should expect that, because Satan deceives the minds of the unbelieving. We should also know that they may recoil from the gospel because they are being influenced by demons, and demons know that God exists, and they tremble at the very thought of God. And James writes this, in, two, in James chapter 2, verse 19. 
So I don't view these two things, you know, the seeing of angels and the time spent on conspiracy theory and legends as two sides of the same coin. I see them as very different spiritual issues. The legends and conspiracy theories is something that Christians ought to not spend too much time involved in because it doesn't advance the administration or the kingdom of God. However, when people report about seeing angels, that's something I take very seriously, and I'll actually probe into that. I'll ask them a lot of questions about that, and I'm always trying to work the gospel into my responses to them because I want to bring clarity to the fact that they are fighting a spiritual battle, and I need to know what side they're on. Maybe they're just being deceived, uh, and they don't really know what they're doing or getting involved in. Or maybe they're actually an agent of the enemy, and their testimony is such that it's, um, or they're being used by the enemy to give a testimony that will upset the faith of some who are in the church. They could be a wolf in sheep's clothing. So I treat those situations rather differently for the reasons that I stated. Well, I hope that this was helpful to you, and I hope that uh, if you have any other questions, just email me, mrjed2007 at gmail.com. Email me. Let me know what you think um, about the episode. If you could do one more thing for me, I'd appreciate it if you'd uh, give us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple or whatever platform you're listening to. That will help other people uh, to find this podcast as it gets upvoted. Thank you so much for your time. God bless you.